You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Room Now coverage of ACR Convergence 2021. My name is Mrinalini Day, and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee based in Liverpool in the UK. I would like to highlight an abstract from the third plenary session, um, which is abstract number 1428, entitled The Association Between Ongoing Glucocorticoid Use and Major um, Adverse Cardiovascular Events Among Veterans with Rheumatoid Arthritis. And this was presented by Beth Wallace and colleagues. So the cardiovascular side effects of steroid use are well documented. Um, approximately a third of patients with rheumatoid arthritis are on long-term steroid use, despite this risk. Um, so this study sought to determine the incremental effects of long-term long glucocorticoid use um, and the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, in patients with RA. So the authors studied the Veterans Affairs or VA data, including um, RA patients with more than one rheumatology visit during the study period, and just over 26,000 patients were included. It was found that 30 days of glucocorticoid use in a six-month period um, was associated with a 14% increase in the odds of MACE over the subsequent six months. And that was independent of baseline cardiovascular risk, um, previous long-term glucocorticoid exposure, and RA severity, such as um, looking at the use of biologics. So this reiterates the need to be cautious and carefully monitor the amount and frequency of steroid use in our patients with RA, especially given the increased baseline risk of cardiovascular events um, in patients um, with this disease. And it also raises the question of steroid use and safety in patients who have had cardiovascular events in the past. Um, how does it impact their future risk if we were to give them um, further courses of long-term steroids? So if you'd like to find out more about this, um, it was presented in the third uh, plenary session, ACR 21. If you'd like more content on anything um, in the Convergence Congress um, at ACR 21, you can either follow me on uh, Twitter at Dr. Minnie Day or um, Room Now at Room Now on Twitter, or go to their website for much more content. Thank you very much for watching. Welcome to Room Now. This is my third SLE update from the ACR Convergence meeting. This one covers Monday, November 8th, and it's an update on existing lupus medications. Now, you already know how strongly I feel that hydroxychloroquine should be the background medication in all of our patients. And I've circled down below four major studies showing the improvement in survival. So I don't want to stop it unless the person has hydroxychloroquine retinopathy. But the controversy is, what dose? So I wanted to introduce you to this wonderful study by April George. And what she found was that if the dose is below 400 milligrams per day, there's over a two-fold increase in the risk of a lupus flare. And there were differences based on body weight. 
So this was more of a problem in those whose body weight was greater than or equal to 80 kilograms. So to conclude, this study showed that when the dose is reduced below 400, there's a consequence, especially in people who are uh, over 80 kilograms. But I think dosing by weight is an oversimplification. So I wanted to show you our data that what really matters are the whole blood levels. And you can see there's no correlation between the whole blood level, which is what the patient's body is seeing, and this prescribed dose by weight. So our goal is to have the whole blood level be 1,000. Now, there were several updates on bulimimab. And these involve the ability now to pool all these large randomized clinical trials. Karen Kostenbader presented this on glucocorticoid reduction in the bulimimab trials. Now remember the bulimimab trials did not mandate this. And what she found was there was a reduction, even though it wasn't mandated. And this occurred early. Now here are the different graphs. And what I want you to notice is that this occurs before six months. I know that you think that you wait six months for a bulimumab to have its maximal clinical benefit, but notice how early the corticosteroids were reduced. And remember, this was always voluntary, not mandated by the protocol. I presented this work on bulimumab reducing severe flares. And you can see this happens both for any flare on the left and for severe flares on the right. And you see these curves really separate by about 12 weeks on the right. So again, early. And here is the subset analysis. And please notice for every subset, the analysis favors bulimumab. And in particular, I want you to look at low complement, for example, how much benefit there is in reduction in severe flares in these serologically active subsets of our SLE patients. Now, there was also an update on bopisporin. This is particularly important because this is the extension study. Now, not all the patients in the one-year bopisporin trial entered the extension study, but many did. And you can see that the benefit on urine protein creatinine was durable up to 30 months on study. In addition, there was no reduction in GFR out to 30 months. Remember that right now we don't have sufficient information on vacosporin to be able to talk long-term about whether there might be a chronic calcineurin inhibitor-induced nephrotoxicity, but certainly nothing like that occurring by 30 months. So these are both very welcome data, extending our knowledge on bacosporin. Now, finally, I wanna talk about something that really is a patient-centered need, because when you and I talk about non-renal lupus, we mean the type one symptoms that are due to inflammation like rash and joints. 
but our patients really mean the type 2 symptoms, which are not driven by inflammation. And those include things like chronic fatigue, chronic pain, brain fog, anxiety, and insomnia. We do know something about the best approaches to type 2 symptoms. And so, for example, for chronic fatigue, there already have been several clinical trials. I particularly draw your attention to the TENCH trial, where 80% of the women with lupus and chronic fatigue benefited from exercise. So today, a 12-week aerobic exercise training program was presented. And I think what's key here, it only takes 12 weeks to make a difference. We need to convince our patients that they have the power to change their quality of life for the better. Now, here are the data on fatigue. But in addition, there were benefits on an immune signal the interferon signal, which I think is completely unexpected and exciting. And of course, we'd like to know what happens long-term. So I thought today at ACR Convergence was very exciting because there were new data on nearly all of our existing medications that you'll take home and use tomorrow in your clinic, but also important work on patient-centered outcomes and the importance of exercise. Thank you from Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. Joining me today is Dr. Larega Gupta, Assistant Professor of Rheumatology and Clinical Immunology at Lucknow, India, but currently based in the UK to talk about the COVID-19 vaccination in autoimmune disease or the COVAD study, an interim analysis of safety in idiopathic inflammatory myopathies from a large multi-center global survey presented on Saturday during the abstract session. Hello, Dr. Gupta. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sheila. It's truly an honor to be here and absolutely lovely to see you. Thank you so much. All right. So I'll jump into, into some of my questions already. So the COVID study had an impressive number of respondents. Can you give us a brief background of how it all started? Probably a brief um, methodology as well. Yeah, uh, to be honest, uh, this started out just as a tiny question which our patients asked, uh, doctor, should I really take the vaccine? So I was running the myositis clinic back home in Lucknow, and often these patients would come and widespread hesitancy, you know, uh, in India, the vaccination rates were lagging far behind the rest of the world. And then um, uh, I asked my mentor, Dr. Agarwal, uh, what do we do about this? What are you doing with your patients? What are you telling them? And he was like, yeah, really, I have nothing to tell them. I just tell them you should get vaccinated, but we don't really know uh, what to do. And how do we answer this question? Because those were difficult times when India was going to the second wave and vaccination had just begun. So we thought, okay, the best way might be just to ask the patients themselves. Let's, let's ask those people who got vaccinated if they experienced any adverse events. And then maybe that should answer the question. So we thought, okay, so there are lockdowns in various countries. Maybe a self-report electronic survey should be good to go. And uh, so that's how we ended up listing those questions. 
then you realize, okay, surveys need pilot testing and validation. So all those uh, routine steps followed. And uh, now the big question was, how do we reach out to all these patients? So we uh, thought, okay, let's approach some of our fellow rheumatologists and um, who can maybe, maybe make patients aware of uh, this study. And um, yeah, then we needed control groups. So ended up approaching neurologists and, and internists. So gradually this uh, self-report electronic survey, it ended up being like a large study with like over hundred collaborators who very kindly helped us with this um, responses. And uh, mainly we tried to classify all the adverse events into four broad categories, like injection side pain, which was very, very common. Then the minor ADRs, you know, minor adverse events, which were like not so trouble, not so troubling, you know, just, just minor rashes, fever, aches and pains. And then the more severe rashes and, and uh, other adverse events and hospitalizations. And then uh, we set out to analyze the data and ended up with this, the rest of all history. Okay, that was that was really a very impressive feat that you know you were able to accomplish in such a short period of time. Really, um, given given that everything's been virtual, right? I presume everything's online, and what you've been doing, the collaborations, it's all it's all virtual. It's all online, right? Yeah, I think it really testifies to the true power of social media. And how connected we are as a world, yeah, you know, rheumatologists around the world, um, all coming together and these patient support groups, I think they're truly powerful in terms of the change they can bring to their own lives by now helping with research in real time and all that data. So this study really uh, is the best example of that. Yeah, good. So um, could you could you kindly share some of the significant findings that, that um, was seen in your study? Yes, yeah, so um, I wouldn't want to miss anything. So let me quickly pull out my slides. And yes, yeah, so, so uh, for this uh, ACR abstract, we had analyzed uh, the complete responses from patients because I'm wearing complete responses. So around nearly 10,000 responses and uh, of these uh, nearly 1,200 were myositis patients and 4,000 being competitors that is autoimmune diseases and over 5,000 healthy controls. So our patient population was um, distributed all around the world, but the largest number of respondents were from the United States, UK, India, Mexico, and Turkey. So, uh, and uh, most of the myositis patients were based out of the United States. The, um, and uh, dermatomyositis was the most common type and 69% were fully vaccinated. And uh, Pfizer emerged as the most common type of vaccine taken, nearly 40% had taken Pfizer. And then there was AstraZeneca and, and Swerge and Covishield put together. So um, we found that minor adverse events, they were fairly common. So as we would expect, like nearly 75% patients and also healthy controls uh, experienced minor ADRs, but severe adverse events, uh, the major adverse events put together, they were seen in 5%. But hospitalizations were rare uh, to the tune of like 0.6%. And uh, then we set out to analyze the various groups that is myositis, autoimmune disease, and healthy control. So there were trends to um, increase adverse events, particularly the major ADRs and uh, hospitalizations in IIM. But then we weren't sure because, you know, there's so much heterogeneity within myositis. Yeah. And, and then we have like difference in, you know, the age profile, gender distribution, type of vaccine taken, region. 
So we tried to conduct an adjusted analysis accounting for these factors, also the underlying immunosuppression. And after that, the only difference which actually remained was rashes. So myositis patients are only predisposed to more rashes, but then, you know, even in general, myositis is predisposed to rashes and myositis is the most common type in our group. So we do expect that somewhere. And um, it was interesting to see actually that there was some difference in between dermatomyositis and IBM. So uh, patients with DM and, and overlap myositis, they experience rashes more often. And IBM, uh, most of the adverse events were actually less common. So this is, you know, akin to what we would expect based on disease pathogenesis as well, like and the patient profile in general. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, overall, if you were to ask me, um, I'd say that vaccination would appear to be like rather safe in these patients. You know, the absolute risk of major adverse events, it's not very large. And hospitalizations are rare, just like 0.6%. Even 0.2% of healthy controls were hospitalized after vaccination. So I'd say the study is overall very reassuring and myositis patients should take the vaccine. Yeah, and, I agree. Yeah. Sorry, continue. No, no, please go ahead. Okay. So yeah, I agree that it's very reassuring. And at least this time you would, um, if, if, if a myositis patient would ask if vaccination is um, safe, then you would be more confident in giving more evidence that it is, right? Um, so, so in relation to that, um, what do you think, because your results have been really um, important as well, so what do you think will be the significance or the impact of these findings in improving the management of patients with IIM? So I think this uh, study only answers part of the question because we looked at the short-term adverse events, really, this was seven-day adverse events. But I'd be more interested in knowing, you know, whether these patients actually develop um, flares after vaccination yeah. and were the long-term outcomes. So we do hope to address those questions. Um, and so we would be conducting another survey soon, which would look at the long-term adverse events after vaccination. We have captured the physical function of most of these patients at the first visit like the first uh, response. And we hope to look at the physical function at six months after the vaccination. That will truly answer because there are some concerns being raised, but you know, there have been several reports. We've seen case reports. Mm -hmm. I've seen class in my own patients at times. We don't know really. We need systematic studies to know if these were actually triggered by vaccination or just yeah. in general. But there have been reports of even post-COVID myositis, like flares. And... Uh, so to this effect, we were really curious to you know, dig deeper and understand what is really happening there. So we did uh, conduct another study as well on a different database. So that was based on a Trinitex, which is physician-reported adverse events. And you'd be surprised to know that uh, the results came down to the same thing, roughly like 0.2% hospitalizations and um, the absolute risk being very small. And there we did find something very interesting. So we also uh, could look at 60-day outcomes after vaccination. So what we did was we clubbed together all the special adverse events of interest, like um, all the autoimmune and thrombotic events and, and inflammatory events like myocarditis, myositis, demyelinating events, um, myocardial infarction, CVA, all of them clubbed together. So these special adverse events of interest were actually higher in dermatomyositis at 60 days after vaccination compared to the non-DM group. 
So again, the absolute risk was very small. I would say that it is still very, very reassuring considering in that large patient cohort of, you know, more than 5,000 individuals, we put together everything and still the absolute risk was very small, very reassuring, but also at the same time, believer in science. So we all would want to, you know, dig deeper and see what happens. Yeah. In the yeah, that, yeah, that would be very good. So before I wrap up, um, were, did you have any data on like outcomes of uh, those who had COVID infection among the IIMs or like how about breakthrough infections as well? Yeah, I, I know what you mean, because this was something even I was very curious about, like to start with. And, and in my cohort, I noticed uh, two or three patients, you know, whose family turned positive, but they did not. And it was, uh, I was really curious as to what's really happening. And when we had the COVID data, that was the first thing I wanted to dig deeper into. And uh, we saw that COVID positivity was actually reported less often by myositis patients. So the odds ratio was like 0.4 versus autoimmune disease as well as healthy controls, which was very surprising. Now uh, we looked at the symptom profile, uh, which was largely similar, but you know, the hospitalizations and oxygenation, oxygen requirement was actually higher, more frequent. So it seems like uh, the symptoms and maybe even COVID positivity, it might be sometimes, you know, um, may not emerge early on because of immunosuppression, because when we adjusted for glucocorticoid exposure, then there was actually no difference. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, they're exposed to high doses of steroids and probably the symptoms are masked. And, uh, uh, and we also identified certain groups which were associated with worse outcomes. So particularly patients who had either underlying interstitial lung disease or uh, men, African-Americans. And um, yeah, and also those who were on uh, steroids and immunosuppressants. So yeah, they had high risk of severe COVID as well as sepsis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, we're looking forward to, to the additional um, results of your um of your the new phase i guess of your study which um will i guess will be recruiting soon right um okay. yeah okay so we're we're really looking forward to that probably in the next year's acr that would be another um abstract session presentation <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah hopefully before that <laughs> oh yeah hopefully before that Okay, so um, this has been a very engaging discussion. And again, I would like to thank Dr. Latika Gupta for sharing her time with us. Latika, I hope um, we get to see you again and here thanks, at Sheila. Room Now. <laughs> yes, thanks, Sheila. Lovely meeting you. Okay. All Goodbye. right. So, okay, so um, once again, I'm Sheila Reyes. Follow me on Twitter at Roomarampa and tune in to roomnow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. Hi, Jack Kush here reporting from ACR 21. Another interesting poster, poster number 1100. The lead author is Mitrovic. This is a group of French investigators reporting on their collective experience with pulmonary arterial hypertension occurring in patients with adult onset stills disease. Um, some big names in the author list here, uh, Jacques Pouchot and Bruno Fortrell, who've written a lot about Stills disease in the past. Um, they, this is a two-center collection of data. They found 13 patients with this complication of adult-onset Stills. Interestingly, all 13 were women. So what they did was they uh, had to meet Yamaguchi criteria for having Stills disease. 
they had to have confirmed pulmonary artery hypertension, confirmed by right heart catheterization. All these cases had PAH diagnosed after the diagnosis of Stills disease, and about 85% of these new PAH diagnoses occurred during a Stills flare. Now, the all women are not. Is that important? It seems important, but I'll remind you of Bywater's who first reported 13 patients in 1971, all female with Stills disease, and then Bujak in 73 in the Journal of Medicine reported the next uh, cohort, which was 10 all males from the NIH. So we need more numbers to know whether this is exclusively a female thing. What are the links to this? You know, could it be female? Um, they had down that um, uh, 69% of patients had received steroids. I'm sorry, had received an IL-1 inhibitor. 100% had received steroids. And this has been my bias when I've seen a few cases of this. Patients have been on steroids, been on IL-1 inhibitors. And I always worried whether that might be a contributory cause in some small subset. And what would lead to that, I don't know. Uh, and that's not offered up in this report. Patients in their studies have been exposed to, as I said, 69% um, IL-1 inhibitors, 31% methotrexate, 15% TNF inhibitors, uh, and none had seen IL-6. Now, after the diagnosis, they all were then managed by uh, the rheumatologist and the pulmonologist, 77% going on PAH drugs, and then the rheumatologist put them on uh, IL-6 inhibitors in 38% of the cases, 13% received IL-1 inhibitors, 85% prednisone. Um, the outcomes were mainly survival, and they're not good. You know, you're not supposed to die from Stills disease. It's pretty uncommon. You're going to die usually from the therapies that we use, um, mainly steroids. Uh, but they did have a three-year survival of only 74%, and that is on par with what you'd expect with a diagnosis of PAH. So this is a scary complication of an often scary diagnosis. Um, luckily, this is a nice cohort to learn from. We'd like to learn more about how to best treat these patients. Uh, and maybe on down the line, we'll see these French investigators put together their experience with success or no success, for instance, using IL-6 inhibitors. But right now, we don't really know. Hope you're enjoying the meeting. Tune into more on Room Now. Hello from Florida. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate for RoomNow.com, covering ACR Convergence 2021. I know that I have harped on this before, but treat to target and psoriatic arthritis is something we desperately need and it significantly challenges us in rheumatology. We continue to work on this area to better define disease activity targets for patients. And my friend, Dr. Alexis Ogdi et al. in abstract number 1344, looked at the association between MDA achievement and disease activity and patient reported outcomes after six months of biologic therapy or CSD mart therapy in psoriatic arthritis patients. So this was part of the core Evitas, and it was um, a study of two, uh, pardon me, 1,251 patients. MDA, as you know, is defined as an achievement of greater than or equal to five of the following. A tender joint count of less than or equal to one, swollen joint count of less than or equal to one, BSA of less than or equal to 3%, a patient's assessment of pain of less than or equal to 15 on a 100 point BAS, patient's global assessment of disease activity of less than or equal to 20, a hack di less than or equal to 0.5, or a leads enthesitis score of less than or equal to 1. So MDA was achieved in 22.8% of these patients. Again, these are PSA patients who had been on appropriate therapy for six months. So what's interesting to me about this is that those patients who achieved MDA tended to be younger, 
They tended to have shorter disease duration. Interestingly, were less likely to be female, less likely to be obese, and less likely to have a history of depression. DMARD therapy at initiation was similar between MDA achievers and those who did not achieve MDA, except that more achievers were biologic naive at baseline. Patients who achieved MDA were more likely to maintain their initiated treatment with sustainability throughout the duration of this particular study. What this study highlights for me is that MDA is an option for patients, but these are low levels of achievement. Less than 25% of the patients in this study achieved MDA after six months on targeted therapy. So we need to better educate ourselves. We need to be more aware of potential patient-reported outcomes, confounding situations for the patients, including things like depression. And of course, more treatment options will be helpful for us to achieve MDA in the psoriatic arthritis patients. But we need to be aware first. For more ACR Convergence 2021 coverage, Check us out at roomnow.com. And of course, please follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, um, presenting uh, for Room Now from ACR Convergence. I'm here to talk to you today about an oral presentation um, in Monday's Oral Abstracts. This was presented by Jonathan Vella, um, and it was titled Cannabidiol in Hand OA and PSA. It was a randomized double blind uh, control trial. Um, now, cannabidiol is CBD. Um, and as we know, both uh, cannabis um, and CBD have um, been investigated and looked at for their potential effects, both in being anti-inflammatory and in pain control um, across a variety of diseases, including uh, rheumatic diseases. So what the authors were looking at here um, was CBD, and they were looking at it purely for its analgesic effects, um, or at least that's what they were trying to do. So they enrolled patients who had no active inflammatory um, arthritis, um, and they were given uh, CBD at 20 to 30 milligrams um, or matching placebo for 12 weeks. They included 129 patients. Um, and I suppose, unfortunately, um, they found absolutely no difference um, with uh, CBD. So the uh, percentage of patients who had a greater than 30% uh, decrease in pain was 40% in those given placebo and 40% in those given CBD. And the percentage of patients who had a greater than 50% reduction in pain was 25% in those given CBD um, and 27% in those given placebo. They also looked at multiple different uh, patient-reported outcomes, um, and across the board, uh, there was no difference uh, seen. So based on this, um, it seems that CBD, um, at least at these doses, um, had no effects um, in terms of analgesic benefit. Um, there is quite a high placebo response rate um, in this study, so it is likely that some patients who are using CBD um, will find an improvement with it, um, but it does not seem to be any greater than that seen uh, with placebo. Log on to um, Room Now for more coverage from ACR Convergence and follow me um, on Twitter at Richard P. A. Conway.